awesome. Today we are covering the aftermath of UFC Denver and we're also going to preview UFC Houston all in one show because there's only a little bit to touch on in Denver, only a little bit to touch on in Houston. Uh, so we'll go through that pretty quickly. I feel like there was some UFC news or MMA news in general, but I can't remember anything. So um, whatever it is, I guess isn't that big of a deal. Uh, Bellator was on last Friday. Melvin Gillard making his welterweight debut against uh, Chidi Njikwani, and they had to do it at a catch weight at 180, which I didn't see who's uh, which one of them was responsible for that, but it was a huge size difference. There was really no way Melvin was going to win that fight, and he didn't. He stuck through till you know a decision, but yeah, that was a that was a mismatch for sure. I don't think he's a welterweight. I think he's a lightweight that has uh, missed some good opportunities and is well past his prime. I definitely don't think a uh, welterweight is uh, the place for him at all. I mean, there could be some interesting fights for him in both weight classes or whatever, but welterweight guys are, are just way too big for Melvin. That's that's just a not a good thing. Uh, but let's get into UFC Denver. Uh, we'll start with uh, Rafael Sunsao and Aljamain Sterling. I thought Sunsao looked really good. Um, when he came back against TJ, it was after a long layoff. Uh, and comparing that fight to this fight, He's still not the most aggressive guy, but he was a little bit more active. He was physically in much better shape. And Sterling, you know, he's coming off of his, his first loss to uh, to Caraway, and he didn't seem like he was he was gunning to, to pull the trigger in this fight. Asun Sao's takedown defense was super on point for this fight so that i'm sure played a huge part to it what would have happened when they actually got to the ground i don't know but um but i think uh that was i mean in the past that's been sterling's best path to victory because he's a wrestler he's not really much of a striker but uh a sun defense was too good and a sun on the ground isn't going to be an easy guy to submit anyway but he just didn't have the pressure on the feet, and uh, he ended up losing a split decision. I didn't disagree with it uh, at all. I thought a sunset looked good, and with the way that division is kind of played out now, with Dominic losing the title, and uh, uh, you know TJ is now confirmed as number one contender, a sunset really is kind of at the top of the division. Um, which is, uh, really interesting, uh, cause I mean, he was calling out Dominic Cruz, which would make sense. Cause I have a Sun Sao as number two and Dominic Cruz is number one, but, uh, I don't know that Cruz is going to go for that fight. He might just because Cody and, and Dillashaw aren't fighting for a long time. Lineker lost. So he's, uh, you know, 
way down there, but you also have Jimmy Rivera, who's still undefeated or whatever. Uh, and uh, Dodson is probably going to be looking for a fight soon. And uh, Caraway, Caraway was supposed to be fighting someone, and he pulled out. I don't remember who he was supposed to be fighting. Either way, he pulled out of his next fight, so we'll see what's going on there. Uh, next fight was uh, Marquardt, Nate Marquardt and Sam Alvey. Um, this was another interesting one. And, and again, I feel like Marquardt, for some reason, seemed to have a hard time getting close to Alvey. Keep in mind, Marquardt did compete at 170 at one point, so he's not the biggest middleweight. Not that he's a small middleweight, but there's no way Sam Alvey's making 170, right? Um, I think maybe he was just giving too much respect to uh, Alvey's weird knockout power. And uh, ultimately, Marquardt loses the decision, uh, which is kind of unfortunate. But now Alvey's on a four-fight win streak, which is pretty remarkable because he's honestly not that skilled I mean he really isn't but um somehow he's been getting it done either with these you know crazy knockouts or he, he ends up getting these decisions he definitely put some damage on Marquardt which probably swayed a few things Marquardt never really got the fight to the ground he did briefly for a little bit but uh yeah it's uh Alvey's on a run Next was Alex Caceres and Jordan Knight. Um, I don't know, Caceres, he can be a little bit wild and flashy, and sometimes he looks really good. I think he's one of those guys where if he if he lands something, he feels real confident, and he builds off of that, and then if he doesn't, he doesn't have that confidence, and then he, he goes the other way. And Jordan Knight is just, he applies a lot of pressure, uh, he's super tough, so I think it was just Caceres just didn't have the full confidence that he can get it done, and Jordan Knight ends up winning that one. Then we go to Andre Arlovsky and Francis Naganu, and uh, this was a good one. Um, no surprise here, Naganu gets the knockout. I mean, it's kind of like what was expected from everyone, and that's kind of what they built him up for. And it propels him into the division uh, quite a bit. But it also wasn't like the worst knockout, because it was more like Arlovsky got hit, he went down, not unconscious but just then wasn't going to defend himself didn't even take hard shots or anything when he was on the ground because he was turtled up but uh the fight still got called um and that's good i mean that's better than him getting knocked out cold or getting knocked down and then knocked out cold uh from follow-up punches uh so it's almost best case scenario uh aside from getting the win but that fight didn't last too long. Arlovsky's now on a four-fight losing streak. Um, that's kind of a bummer. Jordan Knight, I believe he submitted Alex Casera. 
I can't remember what the submission was, if it was rear naked choke or what, but the whole the whole card, whole main card was nothing but finishes. So you had a submission, you had a knockout. Uh, then we go to Donald Cerrone and Jorge Masvidal. And I said that Cerrone wasn't going to win this fight. And my reason for that was that uh, in his last couple fights at welterweight, I think mostly noticed it with the Cote fight. Rick Story, he got through, I think, relatively easily. But I think in Cote, in the fight with Cote, he took some shots and then he came back. Uh, and I believe he got the triangle choke in that one, right? And then when he fought Matt Brown, you got to remember, there was a huge mental thing going on there because Cowboy was trying to be Cowboy and be confident and happy and just have fun and whatever. And Matt Brown was all super serious. And the first two rounds, Matt Brown wasn't having any of it, and he was landing uh, a lot of strikes on Cowboy, but it was a tough fight. And then the third round, Cowboy kind of jokes with him, and Matt Brown kind of jokes back, and they hug, and that's when the mentality of that fight changed, and then Cowboy got the knockout. So then everybody started talking about how Cowboy's on a three-fight win streak, and he's got... He got he knocked out Matt Brown and how great he is, and they forgot that the first two rounds he took a lot of damage. So that's why I thought the further he goes up in competition, uh, the less success he's going to start having. And Masvidal being as tough as as he is, especially being now aggressive um, as opposed to being sort of like you know timid or point sparring Masvidal. Now he's been fighting hard. I was like, man, if that guy shows up, I don't think Cerrone's going to win. And that's what happened. At the end of the first round, Masvidal knocked Cerrone out. Knocked him out. Herb stepped in, put his hands on Masvidal to stop the fight, and then the bell rang, and then for whatever reason, Herb Dean was like, oh, no, no, yeah, the round just ended. Which was incredibly irresponsible. Because Donald Cerrone was out Herb Dean had already stepped in he had already put his hands on Masvidal to call the fight uh you can see it in the replay there's no questions about it whatsoever uh so they start the second round and there's no way Cerrone was going to come back from that so he takes a couple more shots it goes down and it's over unnecessary brain damage for sure unnecessary just damage, period. And Masvidal won the fight in the first round. So now he has a, a double knockout over Donald Cerrone, as far as I'm concerned. So this was really good for Masvidal. And now that he's had kind of like this marquee fight, remember his last two fights were kind of wishy-washy, and then he lost split decisions before that. And it's taken a long time for him to come into this position, but... There's a lot of good fights for him. He's not going to fight Robbie Lawler because they're teammates. But you put him in there against Carlos Condit. If Carlos Condit wanted to come back, that's a really good fight. You put him in there against Dan Hardy. Dan Hardy was to come back at welterweight instead of lightweight. That's a really good fight. But I think the fight to make 100% makes sense as far as rankings and everything else is Jorge Masvidal versus Nick Diaz. 
I can't think of a better fight for either guy right now at 170. Nick Diaz versus Jorge Masvidal is a massively good, interesting, exciting fight for a hundred different reasons. It's a good fight for Nick Diaz to come back to. It's a huge fight for Masvidal to build his name off of. Stylistically, that's a dream fight. Two very tough guys. Like, it's high output. I can't think of a better fight right now than, than to do that one. You're going to be crazy. I mean, I would I would put that one over anything else that Masvidal could do right now at 170. So let's go to Valentina Shevchenko and Juliana Pena. I said going into this fight that I didn't think Pena was really that good, or at least not as good as um, she seems to think that she is. I mean, granted, she got wind uh, over Misha Tate and a couple others, or Kat Zingano. She beat Misha Tate. She didn't beat Misha Tate. They're best friends. What I'm talking about. She beat Kat Zingano. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was interesting because I thought Shevchenko was going to uh, either get dominated in the first round through him grappling and then come back later or, um, or she was just going to get crushed early uh, before she could pick up steam. And what ended up happening is they ended up in the clinch and Shevchenko was the one getting the takedowns with these tie trips before Pena could do anything as far as wrestling goes. And I think that that messed with Pena a whole lot. Pena eventually uh, got takedowns of her own, also from the clinch, which was great. But what she didn't count on was Shevchenko going for submission on the on the ground, and Shevchenko wins by armbar, which was amazing. I think she's finally really settled in. Uh, winning that way uh, absolutely sets her up for the title shot. The rematch against Amanda Nunes, uh, a fight that some would say that Shevchenko won the first time anyway. Because remember, she, she exhausted Amanda Nunes and was actually dominating her on the ground, uh, I say, for the last two rounds of that fight, which is why she should have won. Uh, Nunes got the split, I believe. But uh, that all of a sudden has become a very compelling and interesting rematch. A fight that I didn't really care about seeing before. Now, I'm kind of looking forward to that one happening. I think this is a really good time for Juliana Pena to fight Ronda Rousey. I think, yeah, I mean, uh, the other person I would say that Rousey should fight would be Pennington, but I believe Pennington was her sparring partner for the last fight, so they're probably not going to fight each other. But Pena versus Ronda Rousey, I think right now, makes a great deal of sense for both girls. We'll see if Ronda Rousey even comes back, but that's what I say. And because of that, now with Pena being taken out, she was, you know, number one, uh, I think, going into this fight. You take her out, uh, that makes Sarah McMahon number one. Sarah McMahon, who's now scheduled to fight Liz Carmouche, who's like 
14 or 15 in the division, which is a huge spread. I mean, Sarah McMahon has to win that fight. Um, but that puts Sarah McMahon as number one. And then I have Holly Holm as number two, but Holly Holm is going to featherweight. So she's not even considered in the bantamweight rankings. That means that Ronda Rousey, even after two devastating losses, is number two in the division. I mean, granted, I know Pennington's on the win streak and all that stuff, but Pennington wasn't an undefeated champion destroying everyone in a minute. So I think Ronda Rousey still has that. We'll see if she even comes back. And if you were to take Holly Holm and Ronda Rousey out, then Juliana Pena is still number two in the division, which is interesting. So... <clears throat> Things are starting to shape up in that division. It's still really shallow, though. Especially losing Holm, losing Jermaine Durandamy, losing Ronda Rousey. Uh, I mean, that division definitely needs some help. I mean, I don't know how much longer Carmouche is hanging around. Cyborg's not coming down to 135. Kat has got to be on her way out. You know, I don't know how much longer Alexis Davis is going to hang out. I mean, there's there's going to be a huge, uh, you know, the the first generation of women's bantamweights are all going to be leaving soon. We've already seen it with Misha Tate. Uh, we need to get some new ones in there for sure. I think Shevchenko is a good, good new source of new blood. Uh, with how things have shaped out, it's almost unfortunate that Misha Tate retired because... The division's changed so much, she could still be in there at number one and uh, compete. I mean, I don't think she has any interest in going up against Amanda Nunez again, but you never know. And we can get into Misha Tate's style and all that other stuff if we wanted to, but we don't need to. All right, so let's talk about this UFC Houston card, which is booked really weird. They have some, like, higher-level fights or, high, or, or just bigger names, like booked way early and then they have people that no one's ever heard of booked later because they're heavyweights like i i really don't like it when they do that i have anthony hamilton on the main card against nobody important there's no reason for that osp is coming back after a two-fight losing streak but he's fighting somebody no one's ever really heard of like that doesn't really need to be on the main card or, you know, maybe maybe that should be the first fight instead of the Hamilton fight. And then the prelim main event is uh, Adam Milstead. I forget who he's fighting. And, like, I get it. They're heavyweights. It's probably going to be somewhat exciting. But I don't know when the last time anybody said a heavyweight fight is really exciting unless, it gets, unless there's a knockout in the first round. But it's weird. I mean, the very first prelim fight after Fight Pass is... Tisha Torres and Beck Rawlings and like those are two well-known fighters that have been built up from the ultimate fighter they've been on TV a bunch and you have them as the first prelim fight maybe that's good because it's the first fight on TV that people see but I, I almost think that that should be the prelim main event anyway Tisha Torres who's now 7-1 Beck Rawlings 7-5 Tisha lost her her first loss to Rose Namajunas, that's where she's coming back from. All of her wins are by decision. Rawlings is coming back from a loss to Paige Van Zant. Uh, a fight that I thought she 
uh, was capable of winning, but she got caught with that that switch roundhouse kick, and it's unfortunate. So, I mean, I think this is a fight, you know, especially even with how that division's unfolded. I mean, Tisha Torres was undefeated for seven fights, which in the grand scheme of things isn't a lot of fights, but in that division it kind of is, and she lost to Rose, and Rose is definitely not on top anymore, and... I would think that if she was to come out and dominate Beck Rawlings, especially if she was to actually get a finish for once, uh, it would be huge for her to kind of like uh, put her back in the spot that she lost from losing to Rose. She goes out there and wins another flat decision. You know, I don't think anyone's going to get too excited about Tisha Torres being an eight and one fighter in that division and trying to get her up to a title shot anytime soon. If Rawlings wins over Torres, I think that's a really big deal. But I don't think she has the skills to get it done. I think Tisha wins. I just have a feeling Tisha is going to get on top and stay on top, and it's going to be boring, and she's going to get another safe decision. But I think skill-wise, if there was someone that she could get a finish over, especially submission or maybe a TKO, it would be Beck Rawlings. So we'll see how that one plays out. Then we go to Jessica Andrash, who's 15 and 5, against Angela Hill, who's 6 and 2. Hill is on a four-fight win streak since she went to Invicta. She lost twice in the UFC after the Ultimate Fighter. Uh, and she's looked good there. She won the title, and, and now she's being brought back to the UFC. But she's gonna fight Jessica Andrash, who is I mean, she's a tank. And even with those five losses, I think she, at 115, I don't think that she's beatable. I think she'll crush everyone, including Ioannia and Chechek and Karolina Kovacavitz and, and so on. I could be wrong. Uh, Andrash was offered the fight with Ioana, and she turned it down, which... I think is the silliest thing in the world. She turned it down because Joanna isn't going to be able to fight until April, maybe May. And she wanted to fight first. And that's great. Get another payday. Because, you know, if she walks through Angela Hill, she's still fresh enough she could fight Joanna in April or May anyway. And that's awesome. But if someone offers you a title shot, you just say yes. Because... Even if I don't think it's going to happen, if Angela Hill goes in there and beats Jessica Andrash, then Andrash isn't getting a title shot. <laughs> You're going to lose all that. Like, I don't know. I think it's... I would say that it's a risk, except for the fact that I don't think uh, Angela Hill stands a chance. So, we'll see. Like I said, Ovin St. Prue is returning after a two-fight losing streak. We'll see if he can get back on the horse. Abel Trujillo is 15-6, one no contest. He's fighting James Vick, who's 9-1. Trujillo is on a three-fight win streak, and Vick is returning from his first loss to Benil Dariush. Uh, Vick is super tall. And he has the reach, and that could be a major problem for Trujillo. I think it's been a problem for him in the past. I also think Vic 
uh, stands a very good chance of submitting Abel Trujillo. It's just going to be tough to weather that first storm uh, that Trujillo brings because he stands a lot. Uh, he brings a lot of knockout power, but I really think uh, I really think Vic might get this one. I mean, he's coming off of a, a a pretty bad loss or whatever, and so maybe he's lacking the confidence, and and Trujillo can catch him, but. I think he can keep to the outside. He can outstrike Trujillo. Uh, if Trujillo tries to come in and close the distance, he can weather that storm. And uh, I think he could. I think he could submit him. We'll see. I'm gonna go with Vic, even though I don't think he's the favorite. So next we have Alexa Grasso, who's nine and zero, against Felice Herrig, who's eleven and six. Uh, I think Grasso's first fight in the UFC was a little bit rusty compared to her Invicta performances, but it was her first fight in the UFC. It was a big show. <clears throat> I'll chalk it up to that. Herrig, who I like, doesn't have the best record. She's coming off of a, <clears throat> a really big win <clears throat> in Chicago, but I think this is a, a tough fight. I think it's a tough fight for both of them. But, I don't know, I think Harry has some confidence issues, and I think Grasso is just going to be too tough and motivated, and uh, I think that, that might be a problem. I think Grasso is going to win this one, and I don't know how much longer Harry is going to fight either. Anyway, the main event, Dennis Bermuda is 16-5 against Chan Sung Young, he's 14-4. Bermuda's killed everyone. Until he fought Lamas and Stevens. And Chenson Young's been out almost four years with military service. He's back now. He's consistently one of the most exciting fighters you could watch. I just think with the layoff and the kind of fighter that Bermudez is, I don't see Chenson Young winning this fight, which is unfortunate. I mean, this is a big fight to come back to. After a four-year layoff. I mean, I get it. His previous fight was a title fight against Jose Aldo. And he actually looked really good in that fight. But to come back to a main event against Dennis Bermudez. I don't know. I don't think uh, I don't think that's a recipe for success for the Korean zombie. So we'll see. Anyway, that's it. I'll talk to you guys next week.